Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Lauren Woods. Woods was scheduled to open American Monument this week at the University Art Museum at California State University, Long Beach. The artwork is a sound installation that addresses the cultural circumstances under which African Americans have lost their lives to police brutality. Woods paused American Monument, her word, after Long Beach fired University Art Museum director and American Monument curator Kimberly Meyer on September 11th, just days before the project was set to open. A university spokesperson has not explained the firing or its timing. She has told several news outlets that it is, quote, unrelated to the exhibit's contents. American Monument is an interactive sound installation that utilizes open records sourced materials such as police reports. Visitors were to be invited to place a record player needle on any record to activate the work. In response to Long Beach's firing of Meyer, whom Woods regards as an essential collaborator, Woods unplugged the audio element of the work, and it remains off. One quick note before we get to my conversation with Woods, typically we have a strong rule on this program not to record interviews over cell phones. Uh, the audio quality isn't as good as using Skype or landlines. In this case, that was unavoidable. Woods was traveling. Uh, there were acute time pressures. The audio isn't up to our usual standards, but you'll still readily be able to hear what Woods is saying. On the second segment, artist Ava Struble joins me to discuss her work and her interest in California's migrant agricultural labor sector. But first, Lauren Woods, after the break. Experience Theater Under the Stars at the Getty Villa with the Greek tragedy Bacchae by Euripides. Packed with striking scenes and frenzied emotion, Bacchae follows Dionysus' god of wine, ritual, madness, and fertility as he arrives at his birthplace in Greece and spreads his cult among the people of Thebes. Find out how the story unfolds on September 6th through 29th in a dramatic outdoor venue modeled after ancient Greek and Roman theaters. Tickets available now at getty.edu 360. Since opening in 2005, the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University has been dedicated to building a groundbreaking collection of contemporary art centered on diversity and inclusion. The museum's emphasis is on artists historically underrepresented, overlooked, or excluded from art institutions, with a particular focus on artists of African descent. In this effort, the museum supports global artists of extraordinary vision, whose works spark opportunities for thoughtful engagement. Drawing primarily on the collection built over the last 12 years, People Get Ready, Building the Contemporary Collection, includes works dating from 1970 through 2018 that address issues ranging from identity to social justice and environmentalism. People Get Ready extends into a second pavilion, integrating some contemporary art among historical works in the collection. In doing so, connections across time, space, and culture become possible and present the opportunity for challenging dialogue. A related mini-exhibition, People Get Ready Southern Lens, explores Southern culture through the museum's rapidly growing photography collection. An early breakthrough work by Fred Wilson, Colonial Collection, anchors the Arts of Africa Gallery, among traditional works of art from the continent. A painting by Kahindi Wiley is now on view in the European Gallery. A work by Pedro Lash reflects upon works in the Art of the Americas Gallery. A photograph by Eve Sussman brings a new dimension to the Medieval Gallery. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Tudors to Windsors, British Royal Portraits from Holbein to Warhol. Organized in partnership with the National Portrait Gallery London, this sweeping survey of some 150 paintings, sculptures, and photographs spans four dynasties and 500 years of British royal portraiture, exploring a changing nation through artists' depictions of monarchy. On view October 7th through January 27th, only in Houston. 
Visit mfah.org royals for more. And we're back. Lauren Woods, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me. The work is called American Monument. Why uh, is the conceptual framework of monument important to you and, and why is the work built around it? So, um, yeah, so I started thinking about issues of monumentality back uh, over a little bit over 12 years ago when I was a student at San Francisco Art Institute and I was in the film department and I was already interested in issues of memory and history and things like that. My film video uh, based practice was already engaging uh, those lines of discourse. Um, but when I when I moved to San Francisco from Dallas, um, this occurrence had happened in the city which was in the county records building um, over the main water fountain. One day, a just metal plate that was like uh, screwed into the marble wall had loosened itself over time and fell off on accident. And behind it was a trace that said white only. And so it threw the city into, you know, uh, a, a huge public debate about what to do because they discovered actually all of the water fountains the building had this metal plate over them and that behind those metal plates were white only traces of a white only sign. And so the thing was, is that, you know, my, my estimation is that the sign was originally painted onto the marble. They removed it in the sixties during uh, desegregation and then they scraped it off. But the, you know, the paint had chemically altered the marble forever ever so it left this residue this trace and they left that trace there through the 60s up until the 80s when the city got its first black commissioner and there were enough uh, um, black public government workers in that building to sort of advocate for something to happen to cover that up so they covered them up and everyone forgot what was actually behind them until this occurrence in 2003. So uh, there was a huge public debate. It actually went national on what to do. They tried to buff it out. They couldn't buff it out. So they uh, decided, they finally came to a vote, uh, a consistent consensus. It was a four to one vote. And they decided to uncover all of them in the building and to, to deem them as places of historical um, site or, or significance. And so I carried, I was part of that whole sort of debate and discourse, and I carried that to to California as I started grad school. And I kept it in the back of my mind, even though my practice was like media based, I always was like, you know, there's something to be done here, you know, and I always supported leaving it there in place, but like leaving it to address it. So when I, you know, was in a class um, called from the margins to the center, and that's when I was really introduced to the controversy around my island. Uh, Vietnam Memorial. And then I also learned about the anti-monument and counter-monument discourse that was coming out of the 80s when the discussion about how to memorialize the Holocaust came up. So that really was sort of my grounding in terms of me getting into issues of monumentality. So I, I, and then I, and then I realized I was like, you know, that's where I sort of came up with the idea to address these white only, this white only sign in Dallas. So that's actually the beginning of my public practice, like my monument, new media monument practice, which is I ended up going back to Dallas in 2005 randomly landing before the commissioner's court, the county commissioner's court to propose, to make an, a proposal for art. Um, they, the county, so you know, the county is its own government body. The city is its own government body. The arts commission is part of the city. The county doesn't have any sort of department that deals with that. So that's how 
just through calling around at the admin office. That's how I just landed before the elected officials with this proposal. And um, it was really funny because they were like arguing an eight, like a billion dollar issue and they couldn't come to consensus. So they threw, the judge threw down the gavel and the next up on the agenda was like artists who want to post some art and everyone was really confused. And basically I, I made this proposal to make this what I call a new media interventionist monument at the site where, um, and, and because I'm media based, my whole sort of um, ideas around monumentality was thinking about new materials for monuments, right? So how do we expand upon the traditional materials of granite, stone, bronze, which for me, which for me kind of felt dead? How do we breathe like life and make these memories living through inserting uh, moving image or new media? Um, because public, because um, film itself is a public, is a sort of public art form in itself. So I proposed this project. It's called the Dallas Drinking Fountain Project. At the center of it is a sculpture called Drinking Fountain Number One. And the idea was that when I just take the fountain that's already there, um, and when someone goes to get a drink, they activate it on the trigger. But instead of water coming on, there was I, there's a projection that would come on. A 45 second, second video would play out in the fountain. And then after that uh, finish, the water would come on and you could take a drink. So when I proposed that in 2005, I was still a grad student at San Francisco Art Institute, and um, they said yes, as long as they didn't have to pay for it. So, <laughs> so I proceeded. <laughs> I proceeded to basically, I was really naive about what it would take to launch like a major public work as an individual without an institution backing me. Um, so I thought I could complete this project in like two years on like $5,000 and that didn't happen. <laughs> it took me almost, uh, it took me eight years actually to build out that project and a lot of money. Um, the first uh, funder on it was Creative Capital and they served as sort of the mentors for the project. So that's where I, really where I got my learning of how to work on these, this type of work in public space, particularly as an individual. So that's actually where my interest in monumentality begins. And then I have works that I've made since then that sort of, you know, keep honing in on this practice of like, you know, new materials for public memory. That's, that's fascinating. So one of the things that um, I hear there is that at a formative period in your artistic career, you were confronted with, uh, on one hand, very simple, and on the other hand, very complicated questions around erasure and memory. Um, yes. Mm -hmm. have has thinking through erasure and memory on that work influenced how you've thought through how to address police brutality and indeed police killing of African Americans? Hmm. That's a good question. I think it's less about thinking about erasure and memory, and it's more about thinking about the larger functions of monuments. You know, we tend to think of monuments as, uh, remembering, right? But part of the etymology of monument is also to warn. So that's the framework I think I'm proceeding with. So a lot of people have asked, you know, when this was a, when this was just a concept, like, what are you memorializing in this monument? Are you memorializing? Are, like, do, do we need to remember police brutality like this? You know, are you memorializing the victims of police brutality? And the answer is no, like the, the monument is actually not about victims of police brutality as much as it is about the sort of um, the moment we find ourselves in, right? And, and so 
while there is a part of the monument that um, addresses the individuals that these these cases are attached to, really the monument is uh, a process-based work that um, that that is to get the public to help co-create um, the material for the monument, so we can sort of work through. We can work through sort of all the issues that are attached to this one large issue, right? So it's a think tanking, it's a pedagogical tool, it's all of these things. And through that process, we build the monument, right? Or the rest of the monument, I should say. So um, so really, I think that it's in terms of like the definition of monument or the etymology of the word, that it's more along the lines of the to warn, you know? And as a public, um, what are we accountable for? What are we responsible for in terms of really understanding the complexity of this issue so that we can shift it, so that we can end it, you know? Um, so I think that's more, I think, what I'm dealing with with this particular work rather than memory, you know, because the work begins with making open, making, um, open record requests. Can I stop you just for a second? So I, I, I think that difference between monument and memorial is important, of course, and you put the word monument in the title uh, in all capital letters, which is the kind of thing audio listeners might <laughs> might not know if, if, if one of us didn't say it out loud. So um, maybe uh, before you start describing um, what you uh, did in the work process-wise with, with open records requests, it might be helpful if... Um, you just, yeah, if you described <laughs> what happens and what people see or, or were meant to see, uh, and hear okay. as they walk into the space and then we can get into. Okay. So, um, so the task is, so this, the work actually began about five years ago, um, on a work that I called the evidence of things, uh, not seen. And it was, uh, I think it was like 2014 or so, um, yeah, 2014, sort of at the the really boiling point of Black Lives Matter as far as Ferguson um, and uh, Ferguson sort of uh, becoming a national, um, uh, what was happening in Ferguson on the national consciousness. So, and Darren Wilson at the end of that, um, going to the grand jury and not being indicted. And so really the, this moment um, of the movement for Black Lives, what, what, Sort of resulted for that was the, the push for um, police departments and the criminal justice system to be transparent. So we really, to me, this is the first time where there was this release of information from these or from these institutions, right? So we had access to a lot of things that we didn't have access to. Um, things like video that cops were shooting and audio of encounters. Video, body, so at that moment, it wasn't as much video and body cam that came later right. as the push for body cams happened, but it was, you know, the release of, um, of, of, of police investigation documents, uh, you know, which, which um, had so, been released earlier or the, which, which police departments had blocked the release of. I mean, for the most part there, it's very difficult. If you talk to a family that has lost someone in this sort of violent act, it's very difficult, actually, for even the family to get the details of what happened. They can always claim this is an internal process. They don't have to release it. And really, this moment for Black Lives uh, forced different institutions in different cities. I mean, it's not all over, right? But in major urban cities, there was this push for the prosecution office to be transparent. So they were releasing information. And usually it was like they were over-releasing information that people couldn't even wade through, right? 
So, so I remember, so, so, so a couple of things which suited this project. I remember when, uh, George, when George Zimmerman was on trial or when he was brought up and then, and then it was brought to consciousness that, that, that murder. And then he subsequently was, they, the prosecution was forced to take him to trial. Um, they released his, um, handwritten, um, narrative, uh, statement of what happened. And I remember reading it, and, I'm, and he said something to the effect of um, Trayvon Martin. He claimed that Trayvon Martin told him, you're going to die tonight, motherfucker, in the middle of fighting, right? And the thing that struck a lot of people was, like, no no one believed that a 17-year-old black child, especially, or black teenager, especially one that was completely thrown off, that was completely didn't know who the stranger was, like, in the middle of a fist fight is going to say, you're going to die tonight, motherfucker. Like, that sounded really... False, and not only did it seem really false, it seemed really theatrical, you know. And then uh, when Darren Wilson went on trial, his testimony at the grand jury, his narrative, it seemed like a movie script, you know. He talks about he talks about Mike Brown as both a demon and Hulk Hogan. He talks about himself as a five-year-old child, and then he says that Mike Brown said, "You're too, you are too much of a pussy to shoot me." At the moment that. Darren Wilson's holding a gun, pointing at him, right? So again, another sort of uh, con- construction, uh, fabrication, but really it's, it's emblematic of like what is the construction of black masculinity and in, in, in sort of, um, well, in sort of the white psyche, right? Because the white psyche has an idea of black masculinity that threatens the white, particularly exactly. male psyche. Exactly. And my question is like, how much is this informed by pop culture, <laughs> you know? So, because that's what I read. I saw these narrative constructions, right? And so what I did initially in 2014 was I asked different Black men, rappers, poets, performers, whoever, I took them into the studio and we would do these like three-hour sessions where I asked them just to repeat this one line over and over and over and try to embody it. And uh, they couldn't. They would try to switch the the sentence structure they would try to, you know, change words around and said, no, you have to say it exactly like this. And you need to say it as if it's believable. You need to embody it. And they couldn't. But what was interesting almost every time is that they would go into a space of looking to Hollywood movies to see how to perform it. So literally at one in one of the sessions, the, 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 um, the person that was doing the reenactment, he said, how would Denzel Washington say this in training day? and like literally that was like the key the like light bulb moment that he was actually actually able to say it and perform it which felt so foreign to him before right so i was making these recordings and then i put them onto records and at the time i was opening a solo show of of 12 video works and the video works didn't have anything to do with this content but you know all of this all of this 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 issue was was a huge political public topic, and because I was also part of the organizing community that to against it, like it was very much part of my you know sort of existence. And so for me, I was like, yes, this is a solo show. It has twelve video works, but for me, I didn't want to provide the space for public to come in and not have to deal with this issue. So I decided to go ahead and put this work in the show. And what I did was I, you know, took the audio tracks, cut them onto acetate records, and then I put them in, uh, hidden around the gallery in like inconspicuous places. 
And the, the reenactment, I put those on white turntables. And then I had one um, turntable that was black. And on that record, um, I, I took the source audio from the documentation of, of Eric Garner's death. So primary source um, documentation, I put that on a black turntable. And the, the, the spectators would come into the show and they didn't know what those these turntables were for, so they would just activate them. But what I had what what I did was I programmed the audio to completely disrupt the entire space. So at that moment of the activation of the turntable, the rest of the audio for the twelve other video installations completely shut off and all you heard was this person repeating, You're gonna die tonight, motherfucker, over and over and over and over. So uh, so that was interesting. It was an interesting experiment because the, the viewer had to decide, well, the viewer was complicit in the activation of, um, of these lines that are tied to these traumatic and violent moments, but they also had to negotiate with other people who were in the space who didn't want that, that experience while they were viewing another work, right? And then the sort of mistake that came from that that became part of the monument project was that I had accidentally programmed the speakers on the outside to also contain the audio. So every time someone activated the turntable, the audio actually went out into the art district for three blocks around, and we didn't realize it was happening until about three weeks of the exhibition. So, um, and, I, and I worked like this before in terms of sending audio out to public space. I just didn't realize I had done that. So those, that's the seed of the monument project. It continued... Um, um, I, I continued on my like dig for for these original narratives uh, from the person who who did the killing, right? And so that means you're requesting records uh, from different police, you know, agencies and things. So, um, so Kimberly Meyer, she invited me for a solo show at the um, University Art Museum in, on Cal State Long Beach campus. And I did my site visit in December and proposed that actually, I have been thinking about this work for a couple of years now, and I had always envisioned like a huge grid of these for each case that I could study. And so I proposed to start that process and she was enthusiastically into it. So that's how it became. So basically the concept of the American monument is the, the monument, you know, new contemporary monuments, there's always usually sort of the either whether it's spatial or figurative, there's always sort of the quote-unquote artwork, right? That is, that's the, that's the object that the body engages. That's the object that the body feels something about. That's the thing that represents the memory. And usually uh, monuments for major moments also have a museum or what they call a learning resource center attached to really give the didactics about the history of what the monument is there to memorialize, right? So, for me, as I conceived this project, because, you know, it's, it's a monument with, without the traditional materials. So in terms of being sustainable and running on its own, it can't. It needs electricity and all those sorts of things. So I began to think about monument as, you know, what, what would it mean to have a nomadic monument that basically is like a virus that goes into a pre-existing structure and takes that structure over? Do you mean by structure, do you mean a power structure, a physical structure? A physical structure. Okay. Yeah. So the museum is a pre-existing structure. And the task of American Monument was to really transform the museum into a monument, to take every aspect of what was a museum and transform it so that the viewer coming through didn't feel like they were in a museum, but felt like they were engaging a monument um, in public space. And because this is on a public campus, it's technically public space, right? So 
so the idea is that um, so the center sort of quote unquote sculpture, what we tend to think of the sculpture or the figure or you know the spatial uh, aesthetic component of monuments, that's the turntable grid. So if you enter into the museum in the center space is a plinth with a grid of 25 turntables silently spinning. And it's, a, it's in a design of black and white. And then the rooms surrounding that center space become the Learning Education Resource Center. But I'm, I'm critiquing monumentality. I'm critiquing museum culture that, that's embedded into it. So it's sort of a meta-monument, right? So really, I'm the, I approach the, the learning resource spaces not in your traditional way. So it wasn't there to just didactically give information. What the monument became was actually a process, right? So the center court or the center space was finished. And then the idea was that Sunday would be the launch of a process to continue co-creating and building out the monument with the public through public engagement. And then in November, by November, this particular iteration of the monument would be at its completion point, and we would actually unveil that, right? So it's really a, a think tanking process, thinking about issues of monumentality, thinking about the issue of police brutality, um, thinking about structural racism and structural oppression. That's all built into the public engagement and public programming that from that, the source, the, the material that's produced from those, um, those platforms of exchange uh, inform what goes on the walls of the Learning Resource Center. Does that make sense? The surrounding galleries that are the quote-unquote Learning Resource Center. Um, and so and so the center court um, where the, the grid is, which is like the embodied art aesthetic experience, you go and you put it in. And there's a, so there's a soundtrack playing all around and outside, and it's just like a nature soundtrack. It's like birds, very calming. Um, because the sound is calming, but the content you're looking at when you go into the first sort of reflection space, you're looking at a huge seven-foot um, a seven-foot autopsy uh, autopsy diagram, and it's decontextualized from the Laquan McDonald autopsy report, which Laquan McDonald was a 17-year-old in Chicago who was shot in the shot while walking away 16 times, and so you confront this this first reflection space. You're confronting a decontextualized autopsy report that shows each of the seven the 16 entry points and exit points of the bullets. And and then surrounding that is the other spaces that get built out. Um, and so you hear birds and things and sort of it's kind of disarming because there's like birds and relaxing sounds, but then you're like looking at, you know, death and <laughs> you're looking at the rem the materials um, that are uh, documenting death. And then if you go into the middle space of the grid as you step up onto the plane and you have a choice to activate one of the turntables, which disrupts this really calming sound. And that's where you hear the audio that I've been able to procure from the different um, requests. So it could be uh, body cam footage, dash cam, helicopter, or the bystander videos that, um, you know, people that are, that are witnessing um, these, uh, you know, murders that are putting it, making them public. Some of those are on there, too. So that is the audio on each of the records? Yes, each record is a unique case. So each record player, each, 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 uh, so that you step up onto a plinth. On the plinth are uh, pedestals. On the pedestals are the turntables that the acetate sit on. So each, each turntable represents one death, one murder. And 
that so that center space is called Archive One. Each murder in the uh, adjacent um, educational spaces um, have a case, a box with all the case documents. So in this iteration of American Monument, we're looking at 25 unique cases. And so visitors can step up and play records. Do I understand that right? They can yeah, choose so visitors to play. step up and they activate the records that they want to rec that they want to do. But they're also, you know, they're also intentionally have to make the choice to enter to disrupt, you know, the feel of the space with these traumatic audio documentations of death, you know. Um, and then, um, and so, the, and then, when it, to talk about the co-creation process a little more. Um, so the thing I'm thinking about is, you know, we have a hundred cases, we have hundreds of cases. So that's why this is a nomadic monument because it's meant to travel city to city, and each hosting partner agrees to expand on the grid so that we can continue learning more about about this this problem we have, right? And so, um, so this iteration is 25. The next iteration will be 36. The next iteration will keep growing, you know. So some of the public programming that helps build out the monument is like, you know, um, the open record request is a very tedious process and you usually get denied a lot if you're not in, in an organization that has the money to sue, right, and take it to court. So we've been in talks with the lo different local um, uh, newspaper um, newspapers um, that are like starting up their investigative reporting. Um, arm back up. And so they were interested in potentially facilitating um, and teaching like the journalist students on campus how to do proper research and investigative reporting. And those students would then be responsible for, for pushing to get these, these more records, you know, uh, for these cases. Or for instance, you know, in the narrative construction, construction room, um, we, you know, I was, I was intending to, we, we were in basically engaging people and setting up public programming. We're like, you know, um, there's uh, use of force experts that are now writing briefs against police brutality and they're citing all kinds of case law that never gets cited. So bringing someone like that, that in to facilitate discussions with criminal justice students to start going through this material and really questioning sort of the decisions of these different, um, you know, um, criminal justice agencies that have decided not to prosecute. So it's so it's building out the, the rest of the learning educational um, resource center room in a, in a way that's co-creative. And so once that process comes to an end, we'll have the material on the wall. And it's not your normal didactic that you find in the museum that's giving you information that is actually generative and, and, and created um, uh, dialogically. At that point, then we invite the public in to quote unquote, to quote unquote, unveil the monument, you know. So really, so really, it's more of a it's it's a conceptual. I mean, the monument. It, I'm 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 very certain like this isn't an exhibition, right? Um, and it is a monument. But the monument's not just the thing that you experience. The monument is a process, right? Um, and um, and transformation is built into that process. Um, and so for Cal State Long Beach, the specificity of the monument existing there is that it's a pedagogical tool, right? Do you have other future venues lined up? Yeah, so we've had, uh, so before the, the pause on the production that happened on Sunday, we had two partners in, um, in different cities, different, different states, 
that were interested in, in taking the monument um, on. Um, but since the pause, I've gotten all kinds of um, communications from people that are offering support to bring the monument um, to wherever they are to, to help it to, to, you know, happen. So, you know, it, 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 it seems like it potentially has um, a, a, a life after this moment. Do you have the capacity to handle, process that interest, or is that emerging as a challenge? No. Yeah. I, I don't have the capacity to do this by myself, which is why it was so important that I had the kind of partnership that I was developing with the University Art Museum mm-hmm. through Kimberly Myers' directorship. And so that's why, really, I paused the monument production because I really recognize I can't do this by myself. I have read in some of the news coverage you talk about how a university art museum was a context that was important for you, both in terms of who would see and engage with the work and the project, um, but also as an address of a power structure. Is that still the type of venue that interests you going forward, given the events of the last week, or is that shifting, changing, evolving? No, actually, it makes me more committed to make sure that the first iteration of Monument, whenever that happens, happens first on a college campus before it gets kicked out into the art world. So, you know, there's, there's, I, 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 so, you know, think about the next iteration I think about that's different from a college campus would be like a decommissioned church, you know, in the middle of a particular community. That's a different, uh, that's a, that's a, um, you know, that's a different exercise, right? Um, but I think that this first iteration needs to be on a college campus. I've gotten really attached to that since I started working on it. And I'll tell you, I did because of this. I, I was scheduled to do an artist talk um, yesterday on campus in the, the College of Art. And I ended up inviting the local campus newspaper managing editor because she wanted to interview. And I literally had no time. So I was like, you know, you want to come to this thing? You can just facilitate the dialogue on stage and I won't give a lecture. And when I tell you, that lecture, which was supposed to be an hour and a half, went on for five hours. And the students were engaged. And that made me even more inspired. And like that made me even more clear that like this particular demographic of students, which a lot of them are first generation college students, um, it's, it's a very, very diverse, a lot of POC. I'm like, this would be amazing to work with these students to produce this project, you know? And I'm, I'm really sad about that because I don't know if that can happen now, you know, but it has made me more committed to find the right college, the right university institution that can facilitate this work so that the first iteration really is about this generation of young people helping to create this content that then after that, I can get kicked out into the world in whatever ways, whether it's through community or art world or whatever. I'm sorry, there was one thing in Matt Stromberg's hyperallergic story, we'll have a link to it on manpodcast.com, that I wanted to ask you about to, to, to clear up. The story says that representatives from the Long Beach Police Department previewed uh, American Monument and raised concerns about a couple parts of it. Was that mm-hmm. um, a review that you instigated that was part of your project, or was that something that they instigated? They instigated, and it wasn't the Long Beach police, it was the university campus police that actually is in the same union as the Long Beach police. Um, so they were concerned. They had, you know, I mean, they had concerns from the beginning whether something was being built that was anti cop. Um, they were concerned about 
well, what was said on the tour that I gave them on Friday, um, the only question they asked me was, is, is where's the video? And this whole nine month process, we've been saying there's no video and we've been trying to communicate that this is, this project's not about spectacle. And I'm really clear, I'm not trying to present spectacle of violence against the black body. So I'm not trying to re, you know, inscribe that into consciousness and I'm definitely not trying to memorialize that. So this is really decontextualized. It's really decontextualized. I mean, the audio is decontextualized, but also the focus of the monument, which is case, case, cases and documents that go with them and looking at case law and everything else. This is really like the work as citizens who say that this is not acceptable. This is the work we have to do, which is like understand this past the social media click, you know? So uh, once they were like, once they realized that there was no video, I don't know why they were relieved and they left. Do you think that their interaction with the work before it was on public view was appropriate or inappropriate? Um, I think it was inappropriate. Yeah. Lauren Woods, thank you so much for making time for us. Thank you. No, thank you. This has been great um, to talk about what the work actually is. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents a major survey of works by Laurie Simmons, showcasing the artist's photographs spanning the last four decades, from 1976 to the present, a small selection of sculpture and two films. Simmons's career-long exploration of archetypal gender roles, especially women in domestic settings, is the primary subject of this exhibition, and is a topic as poignant today as it was in the late 1970s, when she began to develop her mature style. Organized with full support of the artist, this retrospective exhibition features over 130 works. On view from October 14th to January 27th, 2019. Visit themodern.org for more information. Bringing together more than 80 objects, the Nasher Sculpture Center's The Nature of Arp provides a long overdue look at the achievements of Jean Hans Arp, one of the most important and multifaceted artists of the modern era. On view at the Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas through January 6th, 2019. Learn more at nashersculpturecenter.org. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, and the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles present David Anton, Sky Poems, on Saturday, September 29th. In the late 1980s, MCASD presented a performance and literary event created by poet and performance artist David Anton, who lived from 1932 to 2016. Thirty years later, this vividly ethereal work will be restaged in its original locations as a collaboration between MCASD, LACMA, and The Hammer. The event begins at 10.30 a.m. on September 29th in La Jolla and continues that afternoon in Los Angeles. For more information, visit mcasd.org. Welcome back. My next guest is Ava Struble. She's one of 42 artists included in Being Here With You, Estando Aquí Contigo, which opens at the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego this weekend. The show presents the work of 42 artists and collectives living and working in the San Diego Tijuana region. It was curated by Jill Dawsey and Anthony Graham. This segment with Struble was recorded on the occasion of her 2014 exhibition at MCASD. Ava Struble, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Before we get to the work that's up now at the MCASD, I want to start with what you paint. You're a landscape painter. 
you've painted landscapes in, in, in California and in New York, other places around the world. And I wonder why is landscape still something that interests you? Why, you know, la- Americans have been making landscape paintings for a couple hundred years now. Why is landscape still worth exploring? Well, I guess in the different iterations that I've explored landscape, it's meant something different for me each time. And I think, I mean, it's always been a way for me to get to know a place, to get to know a city that I live in. So in that way, I think it's different maybe than the way we think of larger traditions of landscape painting that might have had loftier goals. So for me, it's almost more about the condition of my life that I'm born into, which, you know, has meant so many moves throughout my, you know, relatively short lifespan. So in a way, it's been practical for me as far as knowing the places that I live in. So getting to know Southern, the Southern California landscape in a specific way or getting to know Baltimore where I grew up, but, you know, had a very particular view of it or getting to know, you know, Newtown Creek and the part of Brooklyn that I lived in when I was there. So there's that side of it. I think I've also, I've, I'm very much attracted to being outside. So in lieu of being a plein air painter, which, you know, is is fun but may or may not be relevant now. I think at least being able to travel around on foot and on bike and in cars and boats to locations that I'm interested in is fun and adventurous for me. Yeah, and I I want to talk about the paintings in, in, in San Diego in a minute, but you know, one of the things that it seems to me that that you're doing in in, in this body of work that's on view now is making landscape paintings that reposition Western land not as, as that site of providential beauty that you referenced a moment ago or a formalist invention a la, you know, a Rothko or a Pollock or somebody, but but you're really interested in how the land is used and how it's used and, and used now. And I wonder if you think of your painting that way. Well, I guess for me... I mean, the painting, the painting sort of can't help but be about some kind of material exploration. But I think that, you know, in a way, I take it for granted that that's something that all artists are doing or should be doing, that they're always questioning and reinventing the way that they're making something. So on one hand, with each body of work that I make, I'm you know, trying something that's difficult or different with just my my materials. So recently I've been working more with different ways of collaging and using screen printing and and other techniques in the work, which sort of throw me off, but in a good way, hopefully, and make the work or make, make the painting a bit unfamiliar. So I have to grapple with it. But maybe more important to me is, yes, thinking about, you know, coming to California looking at images of agriculture, the first things that come up in archives and that come up in books and online are mostly the romantic versions of the landscape here. And you see fruit crate labels and you see just so many years of tourism as the driving economic force also in in this area. So to instead sort of try to understand the landscape from a perspective of labor has been interesting for me so to kind of well let's let's dive into that before you go on 
the the paintings at MCASD are paintings that you are paintings that address Southern California agriculture and particularly kind of the migrant farm worker experience. So maybe now would be a good time for you to explain how you research these paintings. I think well, from over the past ten years making work about specific places where I've lived. I've made an effort to go on location and you know work from my own photographs and also from archival photographs. Coming here, I wanted to make the this project more social, and so it 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 did also start with books and archives and libraries. But then I approached a couple nonprofits who work with pro bono legal representation of people who work in agriculture here, and basically said. To them and the California Rural Legal Assistance is who I ended up working with over the past year. Just said, "What? I I love your organization. You do interesting work. They they basically do a lot of outreach with the community here as far as basic labor rights like water, shade, minimum wage, sexual harassment in the fields, things like that." So I, I asked them what I could do to bring art into their organization or with their constituents. And then I also started going out with some of their community outreach workers and going on tours of farms where they talk to the people who are there and and make sure they have appropriate living conditions and things like that. So the research became more uh, about talking to individuals who actually work in farming here. So we are also working on a graphic novel, visual storytelling project which is a bit more straightforward, I suppose. You know, and on the other hand, I'm working on paintings that many of them come from images of farms that I went to with the folks from the CRLA and have specific stories to them. So, you know, and then a sort of third, smaller, you know, there's a couple other tentacles to the project. I've been working on some visual, some posters for them to sort of help them express their outreach goals, but not just through text, maybe more through images, especially for people who might not speak English or Spanish. And then we've been also running some printmaking workshops through the museum, and then we have another one planned next month at the, strangely enough, at a swap meet. But so the the project is, you know, it kind of ranges from the in-studio, more, slightly more insular work by myself to a broader range of experiences, which for me is more interesting as a painter right now. So your paintings are are, are landscape paintings and don't include figures, mm-hmm. but one way you worked migrant workers and, and the migrant experience into your paintings is through textiles and textile patterns. Mm-hmm. How did you do that, and where did you find those those images? Well... First of all, I'm, I would say you know, the phrase "the migrant experience" is sort of a, a hard one to for me to reconcile because I feel like almost all of us have some tie to a migrant experience, you know. And it sounds really specific to say the migrant experience. I mean, that, right now that conjures up oh, people always coming over from Mexico to work in the United States or coming from Guatemala. But so many of us have parents or grandparents that came from another country. So in a way, you know, I want this to be about 
it's everyone's experience, you know, or it's a Southern California experience. It's not maybe just as narrow as we imagine it, especially with the immigration dialogue going on in politics right now. So part of it, too, is like thinking about, you know, even my own family's experience of where my grandparents came from, right? One of your grandparents came from the Philippines. Right. Uh-huh. So I I think sometimes, you know, there's a idea of, like, in San Diego, a lot of people are working on border art, or in L.A., a lot of people are working on border art, which to me seems like, well, a little bit of a narrow way to think about it, you know, and sometimes I'm I'm weary of letting this project sound like or appear that that is, oh, it's just another thing about border politics. No, you know, it's about it's about human movement that is happening more and more, you know, in relation to globalization, although, you know, it's also the history of the United States. But in any case, the 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 patterns are they are specific. I mean they're they're specific to certain towns and regions that provide certain towns and regions in the United States with labor. So it was really interesting for me to move here and understand that you know, there are something like 20,000 people from Oaxaca living in Southern California in the San Diego area alone. I had no idea. Or to understand the ties between, you know, Veracruz and where people from Veracruz come to work in the United States, you know. And so I, I started looking at, I tried to think of how I could, in a way, give a bit more credit to specific groups of people for the work that they do here that we depend on them for. So, you know, looking, going to, for example, one enormous tomato farm that takes up so many acres in, in North County, San Diego, they bust all of their workers in every year from Puebla. And, you know, I wanted to somehow like make a reference to that I wouldn't say exchange of labor, but really it's just a, a one-way one way movement of labor in this very Southern California setting. And and so one way for me to do that that wasn't super obvious, but that may you know might bring up connotations with a with a hard look or a long look, was using patterns from that region. You know, as I look at your paintings and try to because this is the way I am, solve other painters you've looked at and, and other painters you've thought about. You know, there's a little bit of Philip Taff here and there. There's maybe a little bit of Larry Pittman. And when I look at Irrigation Pond, I see a bit of Joan Mitchell. And I wonder if any of those painters are, are people that you've thought about. I guess of the three, I probably am most attracted to Larry Pittman, and especially his last show that I saw in L.A. interested me a lot. Which, You're painting lemon drop features an orange vertical on the right-hand side of the painting that seems torn from Pittman. I think it's on the right side, right? Yes. Did I say left? I meant right. Oh, I'm not <laughs> sure. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I haven't heard that from anyone before, but I definitely appreciate the reference. I think I normally, I figure they probably have more of a Matisse look to them. Well, that painting certainly does. There's but, this there's in the, in the middle of that yeah. painting there are these blue and white 
streaks that that look torn from an early Matisse experiment in abstraction, say in, in Tangier. Yeah, I I think I try more often than not. I try to avoid the painters that I like. You know, sometimes I have to try not to look at the paintings and the painters <laughs> I like. But I I mean, Pippin's an interesting one. I don't actually know that much about his intentions in his work, you know, and I think for a long time I thought that maybe I read an interview with him in some magazine that made him sound really kind of <laughs> rich and blasé. And I, I had my students read this article actually and or this interview and I was sort of embarrassed to realize that they all were kind of like, Oh, what you know, he just sounds like he's hanging out in his mansion at the swimming pool and like concerned about his dry cleaning, you know, and it was and I was like, oh, I want them to respect him and his work, but this is probably the wrong interview to have them read. And I think that kind of made me wonder about his lifestyle and relationship to his intentions. And then I saw Lasso in LA and I thought, this, you know, I was, I, I had renewed enthusiasm and faith in my work. And I, I liked that there were references to a greater political geopolitical sphere in the in the pieces without also hitting you over the head with a opinion a political opinion but there was kind of this feeling of like war machines going on in these also delicately painted you know he has that fine painter's touch you know those swift little beautiful marks that that also have something for me to do with the California tradition of like, well, I guess, you know, the kind of like the car painting and, you know, surfaces, right? Detailing of, <laughs> what am I trying to refer to? I guess. I'm no, I mean, I think like, there's, I think, I think that all makes sense. I mean, there's uh-huh. in, in, in both his work and, and in different ways in, in the work of McConnell and Taft, you know, there's a real density to your compositions and detail to the surfaces within that density. You know, there's, you know, in, in all three of those painters, there is four. There's a, a real intensity of visual information on the surface of each painting. And, mm-hmm. and either you can enjoy it visually and and thinly as as something attractive and visually engaging or you can jump into it with with you know your brain mm-hmm. and figure out what's going on there and mm-hmm. i think that that quality which is in each of their work is in your stuff do you know what the sources are at all for philip taft's patterns because i i know they have that pattern richness but i don't know what his where he, yeah, he talks about it. Yeah. He talks about it sometimes when he was on the Modern Art Nets podcast. He talked about sources, and and you know he's he's not quite a library nerd, but he likes going into historical texts and mm-hmm. and whether they're scientific or 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 otherwise, and mm-hmm. finding things that both interest him intellectually, but also that interest his eyes. And I think your method does the same thing. Oh, I hope so. I'm still working on it. Finally, you mentioned your the graphic novel related yeah. to this project on uh-huh. which you're working. Where are you with that, and how and when will it be available? Hopefully it's going to be, it'll be printed in September. That's the goal. It's a new thing for me, so it's scary. <laughs> it's also more <laughs> exciting, you know? 
I'm just doing interviews now. I've done I've done some drawings and some a number of interviews, but I'm still talking to some book designers and graphic designers to figure out what the best layout and final form is, you know, and I think also the conversation all along in this project has been who is your audience, right? You know, is this work that's made to go in a museum or is it work that's made to be for the people who are working in agriculture here, right? And I think, you know, it can be both. And that's my highest goal is that the paintings can go in the Museum of Contemporary Art in San Diego. And also, you know, they try to have as expansive an audience as possible. But then with the novel, you know, I think it, I definitely want it to be more easily accessible to a larger group of people. So the idea is to have it printed and then also to have it online. I really liked, I liked the idea of, however much I don't like the word, of a, of a web comic, like a serial web comic where something could be released every week or every couple of weeks. I think I have a lot of goals. For, I, I'm hearing myself from the, as I hear my students, you know, I would probably say, well, start with one thing and do that well, and then you can expand into the 10 other things that you want to do with that idea. But there are some books, for example, like Zahra's Paradise. I don't know if you are familiar with it, but it's you know, both a poetic and a political story about the last election in Iran. And it, it, it gained traction and gained readership because it was released in a serial way online as events were unfolding in real time, even though it's, it's a fictional story, but you know, based on, on real experiences. So I would like to have something like that where, and then so anyway, that's kind of the more abstract, broad idea of it. Basically, I'm just doing interviews right now. I'm trying to get a, a range of people who are interested in sharing their stories and have different experiences. You know, young people who are first-generation Americans, maybe whose parents worked here for a long time in agriculture, versus someone who's traveled around the United States, you know, working in, you know, someone who I talked to recently worked in the Southeast processing sugar canes for many years, was picked out came back, has been working in Southern California in a variety, you know, in crops here. I think he was working in a variety of agricultural crops in Southern California and now has his papers settled. So I guess what I would like to do is also make the drawing aspect of it more participatory. But with something like this, it's hard to figure out and negotiate how much, you know, am I just facilitating the project and how much am I in charge of the project and that's probably the bigger learning experience than even the content of the work you know it's figuring out how much I'm sharing and how much I'm controlling you know (laughs) which is a good exercise as a professor too I haven't been teaching full-time that long so what is the most effective way of seeding control right how do you how do you help someone else make something that's interesting for them enough that they'll they they yeah i guess that's what i'm that's that's what i'm looking to do well we'll look for it in september september eva struble thanks so much for talking with me thanks great to talk to you that's all for this week's show 
The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.